its length, we will not read our text again, but I remind you it is Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, stories are meant to draw us in to them, aren't they? You may remember a time when a parent of yours read to you or even a teacher in your classroom and with our imagination we may have even put ourselves in the place of the protagonist or the main character of a story. Stories make things come alive also because they have a habit of sharing with us a little bit of the mind and experience of the author. A good story at least will appeal to many since it is intended to share universal human experience something to which we may have empathy or sympathy because we may have gone through that ourselves or know someone who has endured such a difficulty or turmoil or even experienced such a joy as the character of this story has. We see in a way that not just in our parable, in fact, but throughout the gospel, such as Jesus' storytelling ability. But more than this, For our Lord never intends to merely show us good lessons about how to live right, nor even stories that highlight the experience of all men, showing us that he knows us better than we know ourselves, as much as those things may be true, but principles of the everlasting, eternal, and unchangeable kingdom of God. For Christ himself, after all, has entered into our history And more than that, he has made it his own because he has come to do what? Change our story. And then call the church, us as God's people, to be his story. Thus, we read this morning about the lost son who was found. Because in many ways, brothers and sisters, this is the story of everyone here. And the good news of the gospel is contained in it too so that we can tell the story to the world. I want you to note first the manner in which Jesus relates the character to us. In one chapter, in three parables, we go from 100 sheep to 10 coins to two or possibly, depending on how you look at it, one person. And it begins to hopefully raise this question in our mind, what is most significant, what is most important to us? In other words, how valuable is just one life? As Jesus already said, even if one sinner repents, all of heaven would rejoice over that fact. For the truth is that a value of a life is not assigned by man. We are not given a category as to to what worth we hold because of the assessments of those who are flesh and blood like us. But by God, we are made in his divine image. And it is especially important to remember this truth when people or even ourselves have lost our way and how invaluable we should still be to others around us. Let us consider, first of all then, how this son lost his way. Now in the story that Jesus presents, this young man with his older brother is privileged. By the description Jesus offers, he was wealthy and he knew it. 
He had evidently grown tired, however, or was simply restless at home. The parable doesn't tell us why, but that omission itself can be important. Though we do not wish to read into Scripture more than is there, in a sense we can think about any particular situation or variable that we can plug in and say, this is applicable here. It speaks to everyone and to all. That is, we might think of a young man who is tired of his father's rules. He says, I'm out of here. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. Maybe this young man was angry at God because his mother had died at a young age. Perhaps he was angry at society for expecting too much of him, demanding too much of him, even as a younger son. But yet, make no mistake, what he did was sin. Whatever reason for his reason to to depart, he shows his depravity rather boldly. In verse 12, he says, give me my share of the estate. Did, did he have the right to demand such a thing? Who is this impertinent, impetuous, reckless son? Perhaps some of you are even disturbed by these words because they remind you of your son or your daughter. Maybe they even remind you of yourself at a younger age. And it may remind many of us of the time in which we live. We, we hear so often that, that younger peoples, the younger generation, have this understanding of entitlement that something is owed to them. So they, pre- or they occupy Edmonton or, or Calgary and they say, give us what is ours. We deserve it. And we want it now. But there's an important difference here. Because what we have to see with this young man is that he was legally entitled to what he asked. According to the law, and by that, of course, we don't mean the law of the land or the law of the household, but God's law. He would receive a third of his father's estate, and the elder brother would receive two-thirds. But what was unusual and particularly disrespectful about this request is that his father was alive. Now one could, if they were generous and so inclined as you may have done yourself, grant to your children or maybe even your grandchildren something of their inheritance, something of your property, even just a personal possession before you die that you want them to treasure Maybe there's a story behind it. Maybe there's something that you want to tell them before you die so that when they look at that particular item, they can remember that and tell their children and grandchildren. Nothing wrong with that. But ordinarily, just as today, one would not grant to their child the entirety of that which was owed to them before you die. You would have given it, or what was given to your children when you had passed on. So clearly this young man was only thinking of himself. He doesn't even think about what his father would feel. How would we feel 
if our sons and daughters talked to us this way. We would feel disrespected, but I think we would also feel unloved. Yet, for whatever reason, his father gave him what he wanted. And I don't think we need to, to believe that he gave in. Clearly, this young man is of least such an age that he could no longer control him. He would be, in our language today, legally emancipated. What could a father do but allow him to go? And go he does. He gathers together whatever he needs and leaves. Not for the next county, or even for the next province. He even goes to another country entirely. Far beyond the gaze of his father and his father's estate, presumably his brother as well. He can do what he wants, when he wants. And of course, since he is flush with cash, well, he can do just about anything. He squandered his wealth in wild living. Now again, the text does not specifically say what he did with his money. What is wild living? But use your imagination without being unsanctified in doing so. In verse 30, his older brother accuses him of going to prostitutes. Whether that was a false accusation or not, we we cannot absolutely determine. But maybe we might think of drugs. We might think of drunkenness, partying in excess, spending money left and right with his friends. Sounds familiar? We read in Proverbs 29, verse 3, A man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. Such is prodigal son he doesn't know how to save money or even to spend wisely but then that was never his intent was it some might call him young and foolish but more importantly according to God's law he's being what rebellious not only against his father and his family but against his creator his Lord, his covenant God. But then we see that he gets his just desserts, doesn't he? Coincidentally or not so coincidentally, as his money runs out, there is a famine. And I say not so coincidentally because famines, after all, are recorded in Scripture as God's way of punishing people, awakening them to the reality of the rebellion as God had done in times past in Israel. I can almost guarantee you that's exactly what the Pharisees, remember who were the intended uh, targets or subjects of, of Jesus' address, were thinking. Now he gets it. Now comes the punishment. Now the gavel falls. Now justice comes. Indeed, with no resources from his own pocket, or the surrounding area, which of course is dealing with the famine, what can he do? He joins himself to a citizen of the area and becomes a feeder of pigs. See now how he is treated when his money is gone. 
There's an irony, though, with respect to what he's experiencing at this point. By the description that Jesus gives, he's being used by this particular landowner. But he was being used all along. He just didn't realize it. Because the Bible says that by nature we are slaves to sin. He was enjoying himself to be sure. But he was just as defiled. Just as deceived. Muddy even. As he is now. He was before. It's just that his sins have caught up with him. Of course, in the eyes of the Pharisees and any faithful Jew, this man has one of the worst jobs in the world since pigs themselves were considered unclean. What does this all teach us? Well, when the riches of this life have faded away, as they may for us in the next generation or two, what are we left with? Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Ordinary things that we need to survive should be sufficient for Christians. Even as much as we may enjoy other things that we have and certainly give thanks to God for them. But when you have nothing, when you don't even have the most basic necessities of life, you cannot be content. We read that no one even gave him anything. And yet, someone had. His father had given him everything, hadn't he? And now he had nothing. Truly, he got what he deserved. Except perhaps, if he is not our son, my son. As long as he is not us. And though I don't believe this was the intent of our Lord specifically when he brought this parable, certainly there are the echoes of the fall in this story, aren't there? Our catechism reminds us that by the willful, willful disobedience, Adam deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. We have spent as humanity our inheritance too and are lost. We leave the blessed place, the security, the place of provision, that wonderful garden, that paradise, and go into the world thinking that it will offer something better than what we have, only to see that we've been deceived how will we find our way? How will anyone find their way? How did this young man find his way? Second of all, in verse 17, we read that he came to his senses, or other translations have, or literally, he came to himself. What does it mean if you, you come to yourself? Well, clearly, he was already despondent in the sense of having nothing and no one to rely upon. But it would be clear to us by the description that follows that what he does is awake to the true situation. 
he is, we might say, truly converted. Even as someone has said that conversion is but the return of the soul to itself. It is the restoration of the man who becomes a new man, whereas before he was old. Now, of course, this story, as Jesus presents it to us, is told from the human perspective. It's told from his experience. Not in divine in the sense of how God is the one, of course, who changes and renews us from within. But in a sense, what it does is tell us, importantly, what this man had to endure first before he ever could realize and understand what he had truly done and what it had cost him. Outwardly, he perishes with hunger. This wide world, who it seems had embraced him as a son when he had cash, cash, has now cast him aside. Where can he go, he reasons with himself, to fill his belly? He needs to eat, boys and girls. He's hungry. Who has lots of food for him? Well, he can return to his father's house. But there's more that's going on in his heart than, than merely, I need to go to some place where I can get food. Notice he doesn't ask or think within himself, I'm going to, to return home to be rich again. Rather, he's interested in making full confession. Verse 18 is clearly one of the more crucial Verses in this text. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He doesn't say, I made a mistake and I'd like to mend my ways. I'm sorry for what I've done. He says, as I'm sure you've heard before, sin is always vertical, even more so than it is horizontal. And sin is first vertical, then horizontal. Even when sin is acted out against those who love us, it is always against our Creator first. It is greater an offense to Him than it should be to anyone, and is indeed ought to be considered greater to him than to anyone around us. But there's something more, even already in his confession, a glimmer of hope about the future, as Calvin notes, and I quote, as this young man therefore is induced by what? Confidence in his father's kindness to seek reconciliation so the beginning of our repentance must be an acknowledgement of the mercy of God to excite us in favorable hopes. You see, you have to know the, the first two parables. You have to understand that it is God himself who is willing to receive sinners who come to him. If you did not know that, or if your children do not know that, or if the world doesn't know that, they will never come to God, ever unless they know that he will receive a sinner. Why should they come? If he has some confidence that his father may not receive him, it's a, it's a picture 
of the gospel call to us in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus did what? He was eating with sinners. He was eating with them. He was fellowshipping with them. Because he was teaching them to come home. Come home to him. Indeed, this young man's confidence is not misplaced because he's not confident in himself. He is rather willing to be demoted. Now, in a sense, he already has by his own actions. But he says in verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Is that true or is he just being hard on himself? Does he lack self-esteem? It's true. He's taken his inheritance. It's gone. He might as well as come back groveling at his father's feet and become a servant in the home. But what we see is that he is willing to repent and has repented, but perhaps has not understood what reconciliation is. He certainly has not received it yet. Now what about his father? How will his father receive his son? Will he receive his son? Note verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His son went to a country far off. And yet while he was still far off, his father saw him. It seems as if the text, as if Jesus' words are trying to indicate to us that the father was looking for his son every day. He was always ready to receive his son when he would come home. And it says that he was filled with compassion for a terribly unfaithful son, for a covenant breaker. He was filled with compassion and in undignified fashion for the age of this man. He runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. I presume that there is no places for this young man to wash off the smell of the pigs. Of that flesh that was abhorrent to the Jew. And even if he had, undoubtedly the smell would have clung to him. Father goes to meet him on the road. And he doesn't just look at his son and assesses him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He brings him close. Full acceptance. Full acceptance. Reconciliation. What could he have done? Well, I suppose he could have grumpily (laughs) gone inside the home. And waited until his son had come at his feet. And turned aside and rejected him. Or even just taken some time for himself. And and, and assess whether his son was really contrite. and, And whether he really could be restored to the full fellowship of his family. I suppose he had the right, humanly speaking. To do so, but his pride did not get the better of him. Notice even in the way that he speaks to his son. 
how this mirrors the, the reconciliation of the Father to, to sinners who have gone, of course, the wrong way. The son starts to make his confession, the very confession he thought out to himself while he was in the state of being lost. But notice he does not get to finish what he says. I want you to compare for a minute verse 21 to verses 18 and 19. Compare what the son was going to say to what he could say. Before he has an opportunity to say, make me like one of your servants, his father turns to the servants and says, do this for him. I don't even want to hear about it. Because I know why he's returned. He knows what's in his son's heart. He let him make confession to be sure. But he, he was aware of the contriteness of his son. His father already in his heart had restored him to being his own. If indeed he had ever rejected him at all. Again, Calvin notes that God does not wait for a long prayer. For flowery words. For an extended period of time. But of his own free will, God's free will, meets the sinner as soon as he proposes to confess his fault. That's how God deals with you and I. And that's how he will deal with sinners who return to him. Our sons, our daughters, and even the sons of Adam who are changed and converted by his grace. Now what should we do? What what should anyone do in this situation? Should have a party. It's time to celebrate now. And of course, this party and celebration is not like the world offers or the one that this young man, as it, as it were, threw while he was enjoying the world and while the world enjoyed him. A wasteful and reckless party. But one that is, has the experience of true, righteous joy. Remember, the same joy that heaven has. If indeed we can but begin to reflect the greatness and perfection of that joy here on earth. Like the shepherd who found his sheep and the woman who found her coin. Let's all get together. Let's celebrate. If there was an invitation to this party, what would it read? Boys and girls, I'm sure that many of you have had birthday parties. And especially if you were older, maybe your mom helped you to make some, or maybe you bought some, but you sent out invitations to your friends or neighbors, your school friends or whoever, because you wanted them to come and to have a party with you to remember your birthday. Parents, of course, have anniversaries, maybe open houses. These things are, are all good. We can rejoice in the Lord's goodness to us on those occasions. But this party here, it's much, much better. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, if there was an invitation written, it would read exactly as we see in verse 24 of our text. This son of mine was dead. He was dead. 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's the language of the rest of Scripture. Dead in trespasses and sins. Alive in Jesus Christ. He's restored. He's reconciled. He's justified. He's reckoned righteous. Sinners who are saved are certainly those who repent. But they also trust in Christ, their Savior. And the gift they receive upon that day when they return not a merited or earned position, but one granted freely by their Heavenly Father. And that's something we're celebrating, even for you and I. For let us consider third and finally how he was received by his brothers. The amount of material or portion of the parable that's set aside concerning the elder brother's reaction to his younger brother's return, this has led one commentator to note that the story could be called the tale of two sons. And Jesus brings us the mind and thoughts of the elder brother because we will recall he is primarily dealing with the Pharisees, those who thought less of Jesus before associating with sinners because like the elder son, they thought that those who had been lost should never again be received into favor. We have to understand something, however, about the mindset of the Pharisee in order to appropriate, I believe, the richer and deeper teaching of what Jesus is telling us. As someone has rightly noted, there is a history behind why they were and why they thought the way they did. Between the Old and New Testament, the Pharisaical party arose, but of course it arose from the situation in the Old, which is marked with what? A lot of sin, idolatry, and going astray from God's commandments. And certainly the prophets called the people back time and time again to repentance. And God warned them of the consequences of their sin. And God disciplined them for their sin. The Pharisaical mindset then rightly exalted the law of God as a standard by which to, to judge ourselves, to see whether what we're doing is, is in, in, rightly in, in conformity to God's own righteous standard or being. Jesus never condemned them for having so-called a legal mindset, if by that we, we mean that they love the law of God, as the psalmist would say. The problem with the Pharisee was that having come from that time of idolatry, as it were, in the sense of their fathers and the teaching of their fathers, and having developed as a party amongst the Israelites, is that they forgot that God himself welcomes sinners. And this isn't just something that Jesus came up with on the spot. He never did, of course. But perhaps if they were to think that of himself, this is from the prophets. Jeremiah 3.12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, come back to me. Backsliding Israel, says the Lord, I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. But now, from a purely earthly or anthropocentric perspective, that is man-centered perspective, we, 
you might have some sympathy for this elder brother and the attitude that is reflected in him from the Pharisees. After all, what is he doing when his father starts having this party for the younger brother? He's in the field. He's tending to the needs of the property. He's probably supervising the servants and hired men as they, they gather the harvest or, or something of that matter. Here is the, the, the typical faithful son who, who stayed at home. He didn't run away after all. And, and presumably, at least outwardly, he seemed to love his father and, and care for him. Doesn't any one of us sympathize with him at all? Even before he speaks, even before he says anything, wouldn't we say that he's the good son? The son who keeps the fifth commandment, who honors his father? But let us see here that grace must remain grace. According to Jesus' description, he comes near the house, he hears a celebration, he wants to know, what's the big occasion? Finds out it's for his brother who has returned. As a brother, as the flesh and blood of this young man, he should go inside and at least acknowledge the return of his brother, even if he's not terribly happy about it. But we read he stays outside. In fact, he's angry. We might even picture it for ourselves. Just standing there. I'm not going to come in. I refuse. No way. How can we celebrate this reprobate's return? This one who has squandered what dad gave to him. Look what his father does. His father would, could be justly angry with him. But instead he pleads with him. And he retorts, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I would have liked some recognition for my faithful service. I didn't, at least hourly it seems, break any of your commandments. And you never once celebrated that fact I'm not even asking for a calf dad just a young goat for my friends and I you see he's actually angrier with his father more than he is with his brother why have I been treated so shabbily but here's the thing we often think in terms of the younger son and of course, the father turns our attention to that. But we have to remember that the brother, too, has an inheritance. Two-thirds of all that his father would give him. Title and possession is all his. And he indeed tells him that. All that I have of mine is yours. If we wanted to, to think about it mathematically, or in terms of the situation... If the younger son has spent his inheritance, everything that is left, of course, is the older son's by right, by, by legal right. You see what's wrong with this young man? Or the older brother, I should say? 
He thought that he had to earn his father's love and favor. He thought he deserved what he got by virtue of his performance. And so therefore, if someone comes along like this guy over here, and I say it in that way because look at how he, he speaks of him. He says, when this son of yours, he doesn't even want to call him his brother anymore. When these sinners and these tax collectors are sitting around Jesus, they don't deserve to sit there. Well, neither do you. You don't deserve to be part of, of God's body, of his flock. You don't deserve to be called to his promises, to his covenant in baptism, signed and sealed to you. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. But you have that. The covenant of grace that God makes with us is a relationship based upon his divine promise. To be sure we are called to respond in repentance, faith, and obedience. But the promise itself does not truly ever depend upon our behavior or attitude. It stands. It's for us. So, his father tries to remind him what's most important. If he cannot understand that what he has by right is by grace, then at least think about what happened to your brother. My son, verse 32, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, not just my son, he is your brother. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father does not mean, did not mean, would never have meant to insult his elder son, only to rejoice. There's a difference. Yet one man's happiness may mean another man's jealousness if he hardens his heart to the reality of how gracious and loving and kind our Father in heaven is. How then ought we to respond? Remember what Jesus said. If one sinner returns, we rejoice. The truth of the matter is, many sinners have returned. Rejoice. Amen.